Welcome to another episode of Exploration Radio. I'm your host, Amar. In episode 23, we introduce the concept of the social license that mining companies have to maintain to be able to develop and operate mines. Social license is a bit of a nebulous term, as it is not an actual physical license companies have to apply for. But think of it more as an understanding or acceptance of a company or industry's business principles, operating procedures, and community engagement practices by local communities and stakeholders, and perhaps even the wider general public. In episode 23, we discuss how the mining industry's value proposition when it comes to developing resources has to change beyond just providing an economic benefit to people. It has to increasingly align with people's social, ethical, and moral beliefs and values. This is particularly a concern in developed countries, where there are often many other alternative avenues of industrial investment, growth, and subsequent benefit. Communities are not necessarily beholden to just mining companies. They have alternatives that can maybe be more aligned to their social needs. So if mining does not adapt, it may find it increasingly hard to develop opportunities in these places. If you missed episode 23, I encourage you to check it out first. In today's episode, we carry on with the theme of the changing nature of development and social license in mining with Christian Jövlen, a partner at Copenhagen Economics, a management consultancy based in Denmark. Christian's area of expertise is regulatory management and design. He assists companies in navigating the various government regulatory processes associated with developing resources in his backyard of Scandinavia and broadly in Europe. The reason we wanted to talk to Christian is that as an industry, there is a real push by many companies to favor OECD countries over other riskier jurisdictions. We seem to think that OECD countries have little to no jurisdiction risk. But that is not necessarily true. Getting approvals and permits for developing a mine in these countries is getting increasingly harder. The risk in these countries is transferring to the permitting and approval stage of a development. As we spoke about in episode 23, when a society has alternative options of gaining an economic benefit from industries other than mining, they seem to think harder about whether they need mining at all. So let's find out what Christian has to say on the topic. So Christian, welcome to Exploration Radio. Thank you, Ahmed. This is obviously a little bit of a slightly different episode. Uh, Normally, we try to focus on people within the mining industry, but you are uh, a little bit different in the sense that you uh, relate to the mining industry in a different way. At the start, can we talk a little bit about your background and how you fit into the industry? So you're part of this management consulting firm called Copenhagen Economics. Uh, You're a partner there and you deal with the life sciences and natural resources industries. So do you want to talk a little bit about the type of work that you do with these two industries? Sure. So you're right. Um, I'm a partner in a management consultancy called Copenhagen Economics. It's a little bit of a niche management consultancy, though, in the sense that we only work um, where the market and companies meet and face regulation. So in, in, the, in that kind of area and space between public policy and regulation and private business. In the case of natural resources, it's very much focused on understanding the permitting process and really assisting and advising companies from the very beginning when they start applying uh, for permit for an exploitation license usually, and and how to really make that process more efficient, less costly, and faster. 
So outside of mining, the consulting that you do to other industries, is it around the same type of work, around the approvals and regulatory process? In a sense, it is. The entire company uh, consists around 90 people, all economists, and we all work in that sort of tight space between public policy regulation and private businesses. So everything where regulatory issues and policy issues are impacting on business models and, and industries and market outcomes, that's where, that's where we uh, consult. So how did you get involved in the natural resources business? Yeah, that's a good question because Denmark, I'm, uh, we're based, we're a Nordic based company working globally and uh, Denmark has no natural resources um, in, in, in the mining area. We have oil. But uh, as a mining jurisdiction, it, it's not a jurisdiction. But um, the country of Greenland is historically affiliated with Denmark. And for the past, I'd say, 10, 15 years, we've seen a lot of um, mining activity, exploration activity in Greenland. And um, around 10 years ago, there was a kind of a peak in that. A lot of fairly big companies going to Greenland exploring with uh, quite a lot of success and uh, actually trying to develop these uh, assets into actual uh, operational mines. And that's where we got involved in the first place, trying to advise government around, you know, in an, in an immature jurisdiction, how do we as a small country, it's a large geographical country, but it's 55,000 inhabitants, so a very small country. How do we make sure that these enormous projects lasting for a long time kind of will will have a positive spillover effect to the rest of the economy over time so that was really the essence of the concern uh, from public policy perspective what kind of uh, regulation to make and what kind of uh, deals to enter into with international mining corporations around these big projects such that they would actually act as a lever for increasing economic growth. So I, th I guess it's fair to say that you saw an opportunity here in the fact that the way the process was being done was, you know, to put it politely, not optimized as well as it could have been. So you obviously saw the niche there to bring your expertise from other industries into this space. That's true. Uh, I had been working in Greenland on other regulatory areas, other natural resource areas, fishery being the big one in Greenland, being the dominant industry. And having that kind of perspective from natural resources uh, and also seeing the need there and having worked with how uh, fisher regulation needed to be optimized uh, for a profitable industry, but also to make sure that Greenland as a country, you know, exploiting here a natural resource, a common natural resource, how that could be transformed into growth and prosperity uh, for the entire country. So we kind of took some of that insight and the, the, the local knowledge, and, and we try to bring that into the, uh, the whole discussion around mining. So in a nutshell, I would look at the work that you guys do as a way to mitigate risk that companies would face in a part of the development process. Would that be a good way to describe that? That's a, that's a pretty accurate way. I think the notion here of risk is an important one because in the mining space, we're used to dealing with risk, de-risking different parts of the value chain, different parts of the, the whole kind of uh, production. And um, this is what we, what we think has been so far a quite overlooked risk, the risk of not really obtaining your exploitation permit. 
And uh, it hasn't been dealt with as a risk as such before, but we feel that it's time that, is, that it should be dealt with as a risk in line with any operational risk. So let's take that uh, vein of conversation, because I think what you're describing is the difference between technical risks of development and the kind of the non-technical risk of development. And I, I guess the point here that's worthwhile making is that as a technical industry, we're probably very good at handling the technical risk involved in projects, but we're maybe not very attuned to identifying the non-technical risk and mitigating them. I think that's a fair assessment. And uh, I think it's a, it's a natural, it's pretty natural that it is, that's, that's how it is. Say a number of the, the junior companies that I work with, the CEO will tend to be the lead geologist. Uh, he found the uh, kind of the asset in the first place or de- and developed it. And he had done a pretty good job of doing that throughout perhaps a quite long career. So without an asset, why would you ever, ever you know, consider getting a license? Of course, you need the asset first. So I think it's natural that you kind of see that focus on the technical parts. And um, this kind of representative CEO, he's, he's become really good at that, understanding all the technical aspects around the asset and also all the you know, things that come after that. What he has never been so uh, good at because he, he hasn't needed to develop these kind of skills is to kind of truly manage the risk around permitting. He hasn't probably needed to in the past, but uh, we're seeing clear signs that he needs to deal with that risk now. Uh, So I guess the point there is an interesting one to look at why companies haven't historically looked at this. One is that they didn't have to because it wasn't as big a problem. So it didn't rank very high in their priority list. With that in mind, it would be that there's a change now where it's becoming more and more of an issue. Do you think that's the case? I definitely think it's becoming more and more of an issue. Just take the World Risk Report that came out done by, by the Mining Journal it really highlights, it's the first time in a, in a big sort of benchmarking report, I've seen a clear and a, an abundant focus on regulatory risk and also how, uh, how executives are finding it very hard to manage that risk. I think before we talked about these things as something that kind of was a little bit in the way, you know, it took a little bit of extra time to go through the motions, maybe the environmental impact assessment and the environmental papers, they kind of dragged out a little bit. Regulators wanted more information. Uh, But in the end, you know, the the project would go through because it was a good asset. So all the technical specifications were still the main driver and the main kind of, you know, reason for why a project in the end would, you know, get accepted. And uh, I think that's changing. It, It can actually now be the case that you do not succeed in getting that final permit despite a good asset. So do you think there's a little bit of heterogeneity in how the industry manages this as well? Intuitively, I would think that major companies will be a little bit more savvy to this and would then have processes in place to kind of navigate it. But junior companies, maybe not so much because they might not have the resources or might not have the ability to do this. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, good, it's a good question. So let me, let me give a, a couple of examples from where I do most of the work in, in the Nordic countries, Sweden and Finland. You have, um, at least in a, in a local scale, you have large companies and you have your classic junior companies. We're seeing in that space, we're seeing uh, larger companies 
having a larger focus on like extending current assets, kind of brownfield explorations. And in that sense, having, you know, longer historical ties to authorities and government, a greater acceptance of what they do. And because they're not developing all new assets, they've been able to kind of, uh, you know, get, get new assets and extending and, and, and expanding current assets um, and haven't really had the need to go into true greenfield explorations. So they have been very reluctant to act on this, uh, in my experience, whereas you saw, kind of see the, the junior companies, that classic one project, one asset company where you're, you know, you're really you know, taking that entire risk on that one project. Uh, with, a, with no long history, often you'll see it's uh, Australian companies, Canadian companies going into Scandinavia and really uh, being surprised about how difficult it is. They have had to innovate, be creative, because they have seen that they are not getting through merely by applying to sort of the formal code. That's an interesting point. So do you think this is a... Um problem of globalization in some sense if the companies are going further and further away from their backyard maybe you're becoming less and less aware of the problems that could exist in the new backyard that you're playing in it's a big question of course whether you know globalization as we talk about it today uh, just saw this morning in the newspaper about the, the meeting in davos world economic forum talking about inclusive globalization the idea here is that globalization has actually, you know, divided us uh, more and more and so forth. Uh, so these are big forces. Uh, to be a little more pragmatic, um, I would say that it's, it has less to do, I think, about globalization as such. More perhaps that in, in Western countries, let's say OECD countries, and again, uh, my backyard, Nordic countries, the past 30, 40 years, wealth has increased. It's, 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 it's rich, wealthy countries. And I think you tend to see a resistance coming from that saying we don't need, I mean, we value more since we've become wealthier, uh, nature, non-polluting uh, industries, messy industries. We don't need this. We, we want to live off of innovation, you know, uh, ideas, uh, collaboration. Uh, design, architecture, uh, professional services, these kind of messy industries, do they, you know, are they attractive uh, in, in our, you know, in, in the current situation that we're in? So I see it maybe less as globalization and less as companies acting in a different way, rather perhaps the, the public perception spilling over into polit politicians' perception, spilling over into regulators and authorities' way of administering uh, regulation is really is this basically something we want today i think that's the core question uh that you cannot you know ask a, as bluntly to any politician do you want this industry or not no one would would tell you yes or no uh, or certainly not no as a sort of straight answer but i think that's really what lies behind a kind of rising doubt whether these are industries that we should really prioritize in the future I think that's a fascinating point because I think one of the driving forces here is that as societies become more egalitarian and prosperous, they diversify their requirements that they want out of it as well. 
And this is where I think mining struggles because as an industry, it can probably say that it's a very sustainable industry. So, you know, when societies want something a little bit different, then they choose the things that they think are a lot more sustainable or a lot more that bring maybe a lot higher social value than, say, uh, mining does. For example, in your backyard, if you're Finland, you probably have 10 options that you can take as a way of developing societies. So, you know, maybe mining doesn't rank high up on that list. But say you're in a quite a, a poor African country where there aren't that many options and mining is probably the only option that they can take, then they're probably going to be a little bit more willing to go down that development route rather than, say, a country like Finland. I, I agree. And I think this is the context that mining companies are, are facing and they're not reacting to it in the proper way. I, I see kind of one passive reaction, which is really you know, still, it shouldn't be our problem to kind of deal with that. Regulation is still in place uh, that kind of tells us to abide and comply with certain environmental regulations and so forth. And they're actually, they're pretty good at that mining companies, I find, you know, handing papers correctly and doing like really valid and thorough assessments on that. They're just not really realizing that there's been a move and a shift that hasn't really been reflected in an updated mining code. Say in my backyard, again, in many countries, it's still very much a focus on the environmental part. Whereas if I now implicitly, as a regulator, politician, and policy, the public perception is that maybe it's not so attractive to have mining in my backyard, then I just see a, you know, a bulk of evidence suggesting a negative environmental impact. And uh, because you do dig a big hole and there's going to be a lot of uh, noise and dust and you try and mitigate it, but it is a negative environmental impact. I think mining companies are just too slow to acknowledge that. And I think this uh, goes back to a point that I, I think you made in one of your um, LinkedIn posts, which kind of commented on the fact that companies aren't very proactive in this approach. The company model is what's the cheapest, quickest way that we can get through the regulatory process so that we can get uh, going on the the stuff that we really want to do, but maybe that's not the 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 best way to actually foster this relationship, especially if you're looking at mining development, which is a long term proposition. Like surely it's in your interest to get involved early and wholesomely in the process, rather than sitting on the sidelines and trying to get over it as quickly as possible. I, I agree. Uh, then I think, in defense of uh, of our industry, I think. Companies are also doing that, but they've been struggling to find the right way. So, you know, you can easily get into that space where you say you should kind of be more aware of other things that are going on. You should be aware of the local needs. You should be aware of you kind of need to take an active part in that. And uh, that is really, I think, in many ways, straight mining executives away from what they do best. They are really good at driving a lean cost effective business. And all of a sudden, it seemed as if they were now needed to go out and do public relations work uh you know we have all seen the picture of an iphone and then you know we need to tell the story of the industry how many critical materials are part of this iphone and that as as if that kind of you know that kind of moral sentiment should drive the individual consumer to say yes i do now see the relationship between me wanting an iphone i also need to acknowledge mining and, and that's kind of a moral sentiment that we put down that I think mining industry would hate themselves to have to, you know, abide to any kind of 
you know, something that isn't really strictly business driven. The same, why would we assume that consumers would, you know, act uh, in in a way, in a very kind of you know in a way that are really anything but their preferences? They want iPhones. They don't want mining. I think that's an okay attitude to have as an individual consumer. But I think mining industry have been, you know, let's tell these stories. Let's tell that everyone needs metals. Okay, I don't think that's working. Then let's do another thing. Uh, I think that's where the big companies have excelled. I'm just, I'm just wondering whether it has the, the impact that they want. Let's do a lot of corporate social responsibility work. Mm-hmm. Let's do local engagement where we acknowledge people's kind of needs. We listen to them. Uh, we, we, we kind of, you know, we, we, we disseminate information about the project. And, and again, that's just, to be honest, it's just too far away from what, what mining industry is really good at, driving big projects in a cost-effective way, um, taking risk, uh, the right risk at the right time, de-risking at the right time. All of a sudden, this kind of CSR space is in. And I, I think, you know, be honest, look at most big companies, it is a bit of an, uh, an add-on. You don't see a CSR head of CSR in, in the executive board. You don't, you don't kind of see it have the real impact. So for me, that, that just looks like you're trying to do something to act on this kind of situation. Uh, it's just not the right thing. So, so that's interesting. I mean, surely the industry engaging the consumer would be a good thing, don't you think? Like, you know, if, if people were more aware of how important mining would be, surely they would be a little bit more interested in the industry. I guess, you know, the example I give is kind of the organic food uh, movement. You know, people became a lot more aware of where their food came from, and all of a sudden it spawned this, you know, quite a robust now organic food industry. So the mining approach of telling people, I guess, like, you know, where the, all the metals from your iPhone come from is somewhat equivalent to that. Maybe they're trying to engage with the consumer from that point. Uh, so surely that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? It's certainly not a bad thing. And I think it is a good thing in the longer term to facilitate a change in perception, to be able to open up channels for dialogue about how the world is changing what kind of direction we're going. And I think these are things that one should be aware of and, and they're important. However, they do not change the challenge that a mining company is facing at a given point in time right now in a, you know, trying to obtain the, the permits needed to go from a you know, very good asset uh, to, a, to, a, to an operational mine. But I think this is where companies are struggling, trying to think that the big pictures that are really changing perceptions over time and will facilitate over time some kind of you know, positive change. But what to do right now? Okay, so I understand your point now, and I think that's a good one. Changing consumer perceptions or changing consumer awareness is, is a long-term game, and uh, maybe that's not really going to play out on the, the timescale of our mining development. I think that's a fair point, actually. I think, um, you know, I'm not actually aware, Ahmed, but, you know, are, are any mining executives engaging in Davos. Uh, I know my other area of, of, of life sciences, all the major CEOs of the major pharmaceutical companies in the world are down there in, in Switzerland, engaging in discussions around how do we solve uh, future needs uh, for patient care? How do we kind of, uh, how do we make the demand for 
new, very effective drugs that are also very expensive. How can we have both things going forward? What kind of solutions do we want to, to reach together uh, as patients and payers and, 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 uh, and, and companies that need to stay profitable and be incentivized to keep developing new drugs? How do we make these, how can these challenges and solutions find each other? I don't know if any mining executives are there, but this is where you would be able to drive some of that long-term engagement, uh, which, which is probably another avenue that one could pursue. Well, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't know the statistics. It would be worthwhile after this uh, chat. I'm <laughs> definitely going to go look at that to say intuitively, I would probably think that aside from some of the maybe major companies, things like Rio Tinto and BHP, there'd be hardly anyone that would be there. And it probably wouldn't be their CEOs would be my guess. But it's a worthwhile point that if we understand how important commodities are for the world economy or the global economy, then surely uh, a conference or a get together like Davos should be right in your calendar by that. You, you, know, you should definitely want to go see what trends could be coming up in different countries or different regions. Again, that's not changing the world, but it's doing something which is a little bit closer to the everyday problems we want to solve, that there is actually a need for metals and minerals, but there is also this kind of opposition going on. How do we, how do, how do these two opposite forces find some kind of, of, of way of, 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 you know, finding each other or, or settling that difference? And, and I, and I think this is now where you could go from a more general public perception, the whole iPhone and all the minerals going into that and the metals going into that to try and see, you know, we have some operational issues that we need to come up with solutions about. How come public perception is so negative? It's spilling over into regulatory things. We're seeing a whole new kind of regulatory risk emerging. We don't know how to manage it. We still want to be incentivized to dig out these metals so that we can produce these iPhones and other wonderful uh, green technologies that we are all looking for. These are, these are true societal problems. I think that would elevate the discussion from you know, changing public perception and, and so forth into something where you know, there are actually challenges that not just mining executives are interested in solving, but governments alike. I, I, I completely agree. And I guess, you know, like I also think about it from the view that as a society becomes more egalitarian and more prosperous, we seem to think that it or we seem to know that it becomes more socially conscious and more environmentally conscious. So I guess one of the things that I find really interesting in there is that people go, well, you know, this kind of uh, social license to operate is only really a severe problem in places like the Nordic countries because they're so prosperous. Converse of that is that as more societies will climb up the development curve and become more prosperous, they will probably grow their own type of uh, social license to operate conscious that, that we will have to deal with. So in, you know, in a lot of ways, you have a window into what the future will look like in different regions of the world. So surely by engaging it now and trialing and error and seeing what ways work and figuring out a way, it will definitely be advantageous in the future. Very much so. I think it, you can just boil it down to pure economics. The more prosperous a country gets, the jurisdictions get, they will tend to demand other things more. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's textbook 101. They'll demand... A, or more services, they'll demand natural reason, you know, uh, nature, they'll demand uh, leisure uh, time and so forth. So these are That's things right. that, you know, as we grow more prosperous, we don't just uh, eat more meat and more potatoes. We also tend to demand 
you know, services to a greater extent, whereas, uh, you know, nature, uh, resources, services, uh, clean air and so forth are some of them. So I think what we're seeing in some of the Western uh, you know, parts of the Western world, we'll see that in time in the rest of the world as, as, prepare, as prosperity rises. And I think that really begs the question, uh, you know, what kind of strategies as a company should you deploy right now in the short term in these jurisdictions where the challenges are very visible? I mean, that's an excellent question. I mean, in Sweden, I think we're saying that there hasn't been a greenfield exploration turned into an operational mine for more than 10 years now. Wow. So how, how, how to deal with that? that I think that's, the, that's really the question. I think we talked about some of the long-term initiative, public perception, you know, attend Davos and, and, and try and bring, bring it up into, you know, these are big major challenges where everyone should be interested in, you know, solutions and, and how do we kind of do that. But then the day after Davos ends, you still have a great asset. You want to turn that into a mine. You're facing opposition. And what do you do? I mean, I, I think that's a worthwhile point that from my understanding, if you look at something like uh, copper, you know, the number of copper projects that are currently stalled because of what I would call social license to operate, either community or environmental concerns, that list isn't getting shorter, it's getting longer. So sooner or later, if we want to have a viable uh, industry beyond a certain point, we're going to have to start tackling these issues. You can't just keep developing the existing assets or keep going into jurisdictions where there isn't this kind of view because eventually they will also uh, grow this conscious as well. I agree. And um, a way that, that we kind of, the way that we work with companies trying to come up with operational strategies is uh, really focused on trying to depart from what mining companies are good at, making good deals, negotiating, uh, you know, creating value. And really to say, you know, we create value from an asset that is common to all the inhabitants in a given jurisdiction. I think that is what the natural resources are owned by something. So, you know, as a company, you know, make yourself the right one and deserve the right to exploit that asset. And, and really uh, what we like to think about is that try to see yourself as the, as the steward of that asset. It's not really your asset. It's the steward of that asset. And once you start seeing yourself as that, it becomes obvious that all the, all the, all the people that sort of have a, a right to that asset, they need to prosper. And so once you start doing that, it, it's back to business again. How can you create value, sure, for your shareholders and for your company and so forth? But there's so much value to be created around a project that will last for 10, 20, 30, 40 years with massive investments and massive integration into a local economy. Um, how do you go from talking about that as a, as a CSR issue or social license to operate kind of you know, issue into actually creating tangible value for stakeholders in that jurisdiction? Then you become a steward of that asset. And, and that's basically our philosophy you need to become that steward. You need to create that value just as you're used to create value for your shareholders in, to a point where it is so obvious now for those who basically own that asset, the inhabitants and stakeholders of that jurisdiction, that this is really worthwhile. And now you have something to counterbalance that negative environmental impact that you do have. 
but which is often the only thing that you need to demonstrate. So that's an interesting point. So do you think that the step one in this process surely has to be the recognition that local stakeholders are just as important as, say, your shareholders? You have to think of the, the fact that they need to prosper out of this just as much as your company shareholders have to. Surely that's got to be the first step. That's got to be the first step. And, you know, you're excited about this project as the owner and as a state, as a shareholder. Uh, the shareholders are often more anonymous. So let's just go by the CEO or the, the board or the, whoever is responsible for that project. He or, he or she will be really excited about that. And think about how you multiply that excitement because there's very little economies of scale of you going around and being excited. You know, whenever you're excited one place, you can't be excited towards another decision maker or anyone else in another place. So if you want to kind of multiply that excitement, you do that by bringing stakeholders on board. And our experience is that you do that best by demonstrating to them upfront as early as possible, how you intend to create value together with them once this project becomes a reality. And um, those are the businesses of the local community, but they're also, of course, national businesses. You have energy companies that are transitioning their, you know, from, from fossil fuel into green uh, energy production. Can you, as a, can you de-risk some of that investment if you are demanding, if you want an electrified mine? Can you drive technology uh, developments and test bets of technology by demanding kind of new things that are, you know, probably or maybe, you know, not really uh, developed yet? Or can you help them increase economies, you know, reap economies of scale from a new kind of innovation by, uh, you know, uh, demanding a, a certain amount of that going forward? So there's a lot of way you can help you risk big investments from other companies, and that has a value. So do you think that part of the reason why the industry doesn't do it is because there is this perception that, you know, to be really good in this industry, you got to be niche and you got to own that niche? maybe thinking a little bit laterally or maybe in a more kind of circular economy sense, you know, you could then look at other opportunities that you could get involved and then de-risk your assets and your development. I, I think we're seeing, um, I think we're seeing a trend in, in some of these, I would call, you know, high risk industries where technologies are developing fast. And for many of our, for many of the companies you know, downstream consumers, that's about, you know, battery technologies and all kinds of new uh, innovative uh, stuff and, and new technologies, even with the more uh, traditional uh, metals and minerals. So in these kind of industries, you tend to see a kind of partnerships along the value chain to actually kind of de-risk that entire value chain. When technologies and, and changes in demand are very uncertain, uh, you, you tend to see it's more optimal that companies throughout the value chain try to kind of cooperate by taking upon, you know, sharing some of that risk along the value chain. So I still think that you want to, in that sense, specialize in, in certain parts, but being aware and sharing risk along the value chain, I think that's something that, uh, you know, we tend to see more and more in, in industries where, where mining is part of that. And I think that would go a long way of saying that is business. That does force you, though, to be more aware of the risk that your you know, suppliers or customers are actually facing and 
it, it's optimal for you to share in of some of that risk, uh, at, at, you know, more and more. You're absolutely right. I think the, in order to be able to do that, I think you have to understand what the risk during the whole value chain is, not just you know, as a primary producer, but also from service providers and downstream users and things like that. Without having that understanding or without having any level of engagement with them, I think it's going to be really hard for you to understand what they're doing. And once you kind of realize you take that point and develop on that, you're actually on the path to develop partnerships but you also want to take it from just discussing, yes, I do want to engage in a partnership with you and de-risk some of your investment because then in turn you can help me de-risk some of my investment, maybe even take some of my CapEx out and, and we'll transform it into some OPEX once, it, once the project gets going. And there's plenty of room for, 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 for bargaining and negotiating for opportunities and, and, and value for the mining companies along these partnerships. But then you all of a sudden, you know, you need to start putting some numbers behind that. And that's really where, where we also play a big role in, in trying to do that economics and try to see how the different parties would gain from an increased level of partnership. And the point is you do that in the permitting phase. You make plans for how to create and reap that value together once the project is operational. Because when you do it in the permitting phase, that's when you start building support. It's a little bit like, you know, show me, don't tell me. You try to you can't show people something because it's in the permitting phase. The, the project is not up and running, but you can go as far as you can by making credible business cases, uh, create the partnerships, do memorandums of understanding or you know, certain commitments. Once you do that, all of a sudden you multiply that, uh, that, that kind of support for the project that you have now into other very potentially very important industry partners that see you know, this partnership with this mining company, if it becomes a reality, it will help us reach our strategic goals faster and cheaper. Now, I wanna be a supporter for this company as well. And, and this is how you kind of, in a very concrete way, start working you know, with concrete business cases, developing and negotiating how you wanna reap that value and, and thereby creating support and uh, we, we, we see that having an impact once you start addressing these issues because all of a sudden you're talking less about yourself, you're talking more about other partners, how they would thrive. So do you uh, care to give us some examples outside of mining where this approach has worked? I would assume life sciences would be uh, an industry where you're looking at the same level of investment early on, you're looking at high levels of investment, high levels of risk as well and how you go about it. Are there examples from that industry that mining could utilize? I, I love your question. And I, you know, you say it as if it's so obvious. I think you're the first one that has told me that I work in industries that I actually have something in common. So I really appreciate that question. <laughs> but, but you're absolutely right. So take a junior miner and take that into biotech. You have that exact same setup. It's not a geologist, but it's a chemist or a doctor who came up with some kind of formulation discovered a new molecule, how that could cure some kind of important disease, let's say. And for that to develop, it'll take maybe 10, 15 years. And in that time, you just spent money, a lot of money, usually your own money. At some point, you need to get outside investors. And just like in mining, it becomes a lottery ticket and you struggle every quarter to demonstrate progress, make sure that investors are still in you know, tune and believe in your product and you have that one project. 
And I think what we're seeing here in this industry is something about the same, but maybe maybe these guys have been in a in a situation for a bit longer where they have faced this opposition against expensive drugs. So, you know, bear with me. The, the, the example uh, might not look exactly the same, but there's a lot of commonalities and learning from that industry because it's been a fact for many years that very effective therapies, say, against cancer has been developed over the past, say, five, seven, eight years. Okay. And they're coming to market and uh, they're very effective, but they're also extremely expensive. I mean, expensive to an extent that we have not seen expensive drugs before. And we have seen expensive drugs, but these drugs are are ever more expensive, mm-hmm. but they're very effective. So how do we kind of deal with that? And I think we've seen a lot of these, uh, the geologist of the healthcare biotech being that doctor that has found this fantastic molecule and developed that, trying to face and say, as long as I have a fantastic drug, in the end, that's all that matters. That's the same as as long as I have that fantastic asset, they will <laughs> allow me to develop it. That's right, yeah. I have this fantastic drug, it'll, 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 if not cure cancer, it'll transform it into a chronic disease, basically, that people will die with and not of. Yep. So in the end, you know, that will be the way that I push this through. And for more years than mining, they have seen that that is not then the reality. Few countries will buy it. When they buy it, they'll identify a very small patient population that would mm-hmm. be eligible for that cure and so forth. So all of a sudden, because they have been way too less focused on demonstrating how this is actually transforming patient lives, how that is getting patients out of uh, disability benefits that are very costly, how it's getting them out of care, personal care, uh, intensive care, all these kinds of add-on costs, they've been kind of, you know, who needs to focus on that because I have this fantastic cure. So I guess that everyone will know that it's just going to be fantastic. They have kind of missed the point for, for a while saying, no, it's actually our job also to market it to the extent that everyone realizes the true benefits of this, not just for me, but also for the patient, but also for other parts of healthcare system that will save money. Also for the entire economy, because these people will not draw some kind of early retirement benefit or will not you know, will actually work a little bit more and pay taxes a little long. So mm-hmm. all these benefits, that is, again, the equivalent to the, you know, the broadest set of stakeholders in the mining space. All these people need to, you know, need to demonstrate more clearly how my new invention will benefit you and you and you. Because in the end, then, uh, we'll have a lot of support from a lot of different levels and type of stakeholders. And that will help us get the, you know, the market access that we're looking for. And I, I think we're seeing in the life science space companies going about it more strategically. The big companies are really the big pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. They are moving fast. They are setting up strategies from headquarters, developing partnerships in a number of different countries with payers, starting basically with that same question. We have these wonderful drugs coming. We know they're going to be ridiculous expensive. You will not be able to afford them. You don't want to pay that much for that big of a patient population, but the patients would benefit. What do you think we should do? How can we solve this? And then they're engaging in in, in partnerships, basically trying to co-create solutions together with payers and patients, trying to find new payment models, for instance, 
all of a sudden, a lot of innovation comes out of this. Why should we pay Ahmed for, for a drug that, you know, any drug doesn't work on anyone? Why should I pay for a drug if it doesn't work on me? You know, we've been used to that, but why should I really, you know? So maybe that's a new kind of payment model. The point is we'll see a lot of new innovation in payment scheme innovation, process innovation, uh, rearranging healthcare procedures to save money and so forth. So I think asking that question from the big companies and also the small biotechs acknowledging some years ago that this was a clear showstopper. The good drug was not enough to market it. They started by asking that, I'm simplifying, but they started asking this question to payers and patients, how can we solve this challenge? And that's where the innovation process started. So how do you go when you uh, pitch these ideas to companies within mining? What type of reception do you get? I get, first of all, an acknowledgement that this is, this is true. It's becoming much harder. And more and more companies are also acknowledging it's not just a matter of, you know, we spent a little more time, it's a bit more tedious. No, this, this could be a showstopper. Uh, because once you get into trouble, you also, a lot of companies have now witnessed first-handedly that, you know, if they get that first rejection from a permit from an authority, the whole path is sort of set for not getting that permit ever. Now they need to really work hard to change the original decision, come up with whole new arguments, but also, you know, convince people that are pretty smart with regulators and authorities that have made a decision based on the information that they felt was available. And now you need to convince them that they need to make a different decision. That's pretty difficult. It's much better to have people make the, the kind of right decision, quote unquote, to begin with. And we're seeing more and more companies having experienced that. So they say it's true, Christian. It's, we need to do that. Now then doing it, that's, a, that's another question, though. Yeah, I guess my perception is that I, th- I think the, the doing part probably comes too late. I think the acknowledgement part comes early, but the doing part is always when the house is almost burned down. That's when companies are like, now that's when we should do something. I, I agree. And it's difficult. That's, that's my experience. It's difficult to, to come back and kind of change around a situation where you're kind of, you know, already being set up for kind of defeat. Yeah, I always think about this, that, you know, the, the real value a group like yours provides is that it's intuitively, it's very easy to see what the value destruction could be if the approvals process doesn't go well. But it's not always, I think, clear to see what the you know positive value proposition is if it goes really well. We maybe make these decisions from a loss frame of mind rather than a, a gain frame of mind, like, you know, where... We're only really engaged when we know we've, we're almost losing the battle. And I don't think that's probably the best way to go about it. No, I agree. And I, I think there are two things to say to that that kind of explains it. The first is uh, that, that mining executives are not really you know, trained and skilled in, in all these things. I think, it has, I think it is fair to say that the companies who have done most, they have put it in some kind of CSR uh, part of the company and, mm-hmm. and not really dealt with it as a, as a strategic de-risking effort. Um, I, I think so. So I, I think skills and insight into the importance and how to manage and do it is lacking. I think that's one explanation. But the other is that, you know, to be fair to, to, to mining executives, it is also not your classic kind of, there's a certain probability of risk. And then I multiply it by the uh, expected negative consequences when that risk emerges. That's my expected you know, downside from that risk. That's how we usually 
looking and de-risking different options. This is much more uh, of a, a, a kind of situation where you have very low probability, very high negative consequence. Mm-hmm. And this becomes for yeah, the human true. mind more difficult to work with. If you have a, a, a fairly large probability, you want to de-risk it and mitigate and stuff like that. So it's down to a manageable uh, you know, level that you can kind of say, you know, this is the kind of risk level we want to work with. But these risks are also all, already very small, or at least companies are still in under the imagination that these risks are still small. There's still a yes, but my asset and the way that I have usually been greeted by you know people when I went out and also policymakers and I have actually met with policymakers Christian they tell me so and they were kind of fond of my project so I don't think that we will have a problem I, I do I do realize that others have problems and I have actually experienced problems myself before but this particular asset with this particular circumstance that's kind of unique and I tell them you're not unique everyone there's a kind of a unique you know bias towards you know, people think that they're in a more unique position than the rest of the industry, and and I'm a bit different. You know, the rest they're kind of set out for disaster, but I'm I'm actually in a position where I'm doing you know better. I mean, that's like classic confirmation bias, right? That's just confirmation bias, yeah. And you know, you know, take upon you that as a CEO of that company or as a as the responsible of that project, you probably already spent several years of your life working on that asset, developing it, testing it. You kind of, it, it is, you know, you don't have a lot of these assets as a person. You want to have success and you don't just like jump from one to the other. Um, but you're also very cost conscious. It's a cost conscious business and you have not been used to spending money on this kind of process before in a strategic way, spending real money on it. And, and uh, the point is with a low probability, high consequence, most people tend to say, you know, the probability is so low, I'll just stick with that. And on top of that, I, you know, I think it's actually, you know, even lower because I'm in that in that unique position of having some kind of unique, you know, position in the market. So I think I'm good. But the others, yeah, that's you should talk to them, Christian, because it'll be difficult for them. And then once it actually starts playing out, it's too late. It's often much less effective to start working in the way that we suggest because. Now you, you're trying to rescue something and, and explain why things that have been decided should be reversed. And that's just much more difficult. Uh, like if you're transparent up front, I think that, that will put you in a lot better stead than trying to change tact afterwards because then the party on the other side will become a little bit wary about how come you're changing your mind now. And I guess the other comment I wanted to make is that as an industry, perhaps our investor base is maybe not mature enough to understand that if you spend X millions of dollars in this process, that's money well spent. If you had $5 million, investors are probably going to force you to drill more or do another study or something like that. Whereas if you said, I'm going to spend $5 million to de-risk the approvals process, they probably won't care because they, they, they may not see the value in that. I, I, I totally agree. It's, it's, it's something about changing a mindset. Look, um, I'm working currently with a, uh, with a junior company and um, they told me this, which I found kind of you know, fascinating because I thought it was very forward-looking and very sort of way of, of looking at this as, a, as an aggressive way of going to the market. They say, we want to develop this kind of approach and model um, with you. And um, we can see that it'll benefit the project that we have now, the asset that we have now. We want to control that risk and do all the things that we've just talked about. 
but we see we, we, we see this as another benefit. If we develop a framework, if we start to internalize the skills, we see that this is this has become a model that we can deploy in different for different assets in different you know, jurisdictions in an efficient way. We think this is a competitive advantage for us. We believe we can buy up over time assets that are good, good technical quality, good quality assets, but where the people responsible for that, they do not have this model. They do not really, they do not manage to secure that fully permanent mine. So we, we think that there's an arbitrage opportunity for us to buy up assets with a currently lower expected value because there is no process in place. Maybe it's already been rejected by the authorities and now the actual you know, expected value of that asset is pretty low. And we can go in and we have a proven model. We can raise the value of that asset and make money off it. So I think that was very kind of aggressive in a very nice way, business aggressive in the way of, of looking at this as a tool to you know, be competitive. Oh, I mean, I think that's fascinating. And you're absolutely right. I mean, if a company can do it really well, that's definitely a competitive advantage, especially for a, a junior. There's so many companies out there trying to do the same thing. I mean, if you could work out a way of going around it, surely it would be a great competitive advantage to you. So we're uh, coming close to the end of our interview. We normally end our interviews with two questions. So the first question is, what is something that you think needs to die in mining? So it could be an idea, a concept, uh, you know, a behavior that you think we need to get rid of from our industry. I think the idea that as long as we comply with regulation, as long as we submit the environmental forms, we should be okay. Uh, that is wishful thinking and, and wishful thinking as a strategy, that is just not sustainable. So I, I wish executives would get away from that and realize they basically need to provide that positive aspect, building that support and being that steward of that asset up front. That's the way that you manage it. I, I really like the word that you use, steward. I think that's really you know, something that would change a mindset and how people look at this because I don't think right now we look at it that way. So I think that's a really good point. Um, so conversely, what is something that you think we should uh, keep in mining at all costs? You know, something that you think is fundamental, this industry should never forget. It's business acumen. It's ability to be cost-effective, building cost-effective value chains, be cost-conscious at all time. Is this money worthwhile spending? This kind of focus, because in a broader sense, that could be seen as, a, as, as something that is really, you know, a little bit going out of fashion and... and, and uh, we talk about broader society impact and stuff like that. But at the core of it, this kind of approach to business is in a broader perspective how you utilize resources that we have available globally mm -hmm. most effectively. You don't want to waste resources. You can't afford to do that. And I think this kind of the, the tradition, the business acumen that comes from mining industry that's part of the DNA, to be able to also going, in, going forward teaching regulators politicians and even public you know perception that this way of always being conscious about how you spent your money how you create value you only spent money here if you create more value than than you kind of that it cost you this kind of way is something that is unfortunately not so well understood with many regulators authorities politicians and i think this is an area where we shouldn't stray away 
try to think now we need to kind of cater for everyone else but us and that surely has got to cost us money no you kind of bring that whole mindset into the way that you know also teach politicians and, and business authorities or, or regulatory authorities you know this you know why is why is it important to keep thinking about you know being uh, being cost focused and, and and doing things that are worthwhile in an economic sense so in that sense uh maybe you know part of the reason why people don't understand this industry is because we don't take the time to explain why the industry works the way it does i mean yeah like i would assume that some regulatory authorities and you know some policymakers probably don't understand the fundamental kind of drivers behind the industry maybe part of the problem as well i th- i i think that is a bigger truth than what we uh, tend to to think about it and you know, I, I wish that someone would kind of take upon them to, um, to, to, to educate in that area. I think it would be, you know, even more worthwhile than the whole iPhone and look at all the uh, metals in that. I think that would be the, uh, you know, equipment or at least, you know, maybe not more worthwhile, but at least something complementary to try really and understand when you think as a good, as a good businessman, when you don't spend money unnecessarily, when you think about creating value along every step of the value chain you are using societies and our all our resources in the best optimal way and and that is the end how you drive wealth and and prosperity and i think this kind of way of understanding that is why we sometimes take decisions that from a policy perspective or regulatory perspective seems egoistic or seems like self-centered or something no this is really just a good way of driving business but you can create that value can be shared by other parties if they want to engage in this kind of a, a way of spending and optimizing resources. And I think this is, this is really how you, how you foster competition and competitive jobs and sustainable jobs. And, and that kind of uh, teaching, I think, is lacking. I think uh, that's a fantastic point to end on. Uh, I think we have to think about the, the bigger problem rather than just the problem that's in front of us. Uh, and, and I don't think we've been very good at doing that as an industry. Thanks, Christian. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. That was a great discussion. I love joining. It's been a pleasure. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and Ahmad. This episode was produced and edited by Ahmad and recorded at Vision Studios in Perth. If you want to find out more about this podcast, check us out on explorationradio.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And we're even on Instagram. And if you like this podcast and want to help out, well, there's two things you can do for us. Give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And consider supporting us in producing more of this content. You can find the details on how to do that on our website at explorationradio.com support. Until next time, let's keep exploring.